that are here with us this morning, um, that I've got a lot of respect for what they do on a weekly basis and um, what Chet's doing in Mexico uh, with um, uh, the rest of our folks down there because this is, uh, yeah, this is, um, this is a daunting task to uh, be able to sit in front of you guys this morning and, and, um, and, and talk to you guys. Um, so... Uh, I just want to start off by saying that I'm really humbled by this. Um, yeah, so I just uh, hope and pray that I am who you need me to be this morning, but more importantly, who the uh, the Holy Spirit needs me to be this morning uh, for you guys. So um, the elders have asked me over the next uh, couple of weeks, over the next two weeks, to cover James 4.11 through James 5.20. Um, we're going to try over the next two weeks to kind of dig in uh, as normal. But uh, in typical Jimbo fashion, uh, I'm going to kind of take a little bit different approach than normal because I've been given um, the end of chapter 4 uh, all the way through chapter 5. And looking at those verses, um, I'm, I'm going to cover basically the beginning of my section today and then the end of my section. Thank you. Um, the end of my section today, and then we'll kind of um, get into the middle portion, uh, hopefully next week. Um, so let me get, begin with prayer, uh, and then we'll try to get this thing rolling. Dear Jesus, we just ask, um, we just ask that you increase this morning. We ask that uh, we decrease and you increase, Father. Um, we ask that we look to you and nothing else. Uh, we ask that you um, set our hearts on serving you and not serving this world, Father. Uh, we just ask that you show us your grace and your truth this morning, Father. Um, please be with uh, Chet and Eduardo and Delaney. Uh, in Rio Blanco this morning, and just allow them to uh, increase your ministry there, Father. And uh, we just pray that uh, your hand is on us here in Athens, Georgia, and your hand is on them uh, in Mexico as we just uh, seek to, to know you deeper and know you more fully this morning. Uh, in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So, um, I'm a white guy. Um, if none of you knew that or didn't know that already, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a white male, uh, middle class, uh, married, and you know live here in Athens, Georgia. Some of the topics that we're going to talk about this morning, I think it would be really naive of me to um, try to come across as being some type of um, you know person who was really knowledgeable about what it felt like to be a racial minority. Um, in Athens, Georgia, what it felt like to be female, uh, what it felt like to, um, you know, be a, an unwed mom with a child. Um, I'm very naive to all of that. I don't, I don't know what it's like, and so I'm not trying to come to you this morning uh, as some type of resource on racism uh, or on um, any of the topics that we're going to talk about this morning. My goal this morning is just to kind of mainly challenge myself, and that's the main thing that I've, that this internal dialogue that I've been having with myself over the past couple of weeks as I've prepared for this message has been, um, I'm preaching more to myself this morning than anybody else. So y'all just happen to listen to me preach to myself. <laughs> okay, so this is what I've been talking uh, to myself about for the past week, so y'all just get a little bit of insight into what it's like to, uh, to try to sleep at night when you're Jimbo Wood. Um, so I just ask that we, we seek the Lord's will this morning in, in thinking about the message this morning. When I look up here every Sunday and I see that one up there, um, sometimes that one makes me uncomfortable. 
you know. Um, I want it to be a two or a three or a five, um, but it's not. It's just a one. And so all too often, I try to add extra stuff to Jesus, and I try to make Jesus not quite enough. But I think one hope says it all. Um, Jesus is our one hope. And so when I try to add something to that, um, that's not the intention. Jesus is supposed to be it. And so if I say some stuff this morning that's challenging, um, know that I come from a place of deep humility. Um, But I want us all to to set our sights on Jesus this morning. Um, when When I talked to Chet, earlier in the week about kind of some of the topics that I was going to discuss this morning. Chet just kind of reinforced, and he said, Jimbo, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, don't be afraid to challenge some of the, the political stuff that's going on in our world today. He said, you know, remember John the Baptist lost his life basically for challenging the authorities um, of his time. Uh, so um, not to put me in anywhere close to the same category as John the Baptist, but anyway. Um, so... I just want to start by saying I'm really concerned about our world today. Um, every morning when Beth and I wake up and we're about to get ready to go to work and we're sitting, in, laying in bed, drinking our coffee and watching the morning news, it's just unbelievable to me how off track we are. Uh, every day, it seems like it's getting worse. Um, Shootings, bombings, beheadings, violent and nonviolent protests, suicide bombers. Um, this is just the norm at this point in time. I'm beginning to wonder, like, when are our flags not going to be at half-mast anymore? Because they're constantly at half-mast. Um, Beth and I and the kids were in Los Angeles at the Santa Monica Pier a couple of weeks ago. And I thought to myself, and I think this is the first time I've ever thought this, I thought to myself, what am I going to do if people start, somebody starts shooting right here? How am I going to protect my wife and protect my kids? Um, and so this is the world that we live in. Um, we think that stricter gun laws, stricter borders, stricter immigration policies um, are going to correct the problem. We think that you know, if only our candidate gets elected, Um, everything's going to be better. Uh, If only we had more money to devote to the problem, then surely our politicians and the leadership at the top, they're going to take care of it for us. Uh, I fear, however, that neither Donald Trump nor Hillary Clinton have the skill set to address the issue. I challenge us this morning to look at our political candidates and, and compare them to the standard that Jesus established for leadership, um, not to the lesser of two evils mentality. We shouldn't compare Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump or Donald Trump to Hillary Clinton. Uh, We should compare Hillary to Jesus' standard for leadership, and we should compare Donald Trump to Hillary Clinton, um, Donald Trump to (laughs) Jesus' standard for leadership. In Matthew 11, 29... Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. Jesus calls himself gentle and calls himself humble. And if this is our standard, then gentleness and humility needs to be the hallmark at which we address all issues in our world, especially at which we address leadership. I'm afraid that gentleness and humility are not commonplace in our current political landscape. I'm afraid that our political conservatives are missing the point as their version of truth often looks like a hardline legalism that seems devoid of grace and compassion and empathy. I'm afraid that our politically left-minded friends have also missed the mark as they seem to exhibit an overwhelming amount of compassion that is often equally matched matched with moral relativism without an absolute standard or without absolute truth. Not one drop of right and wrong at at, at some points in the game. The liberal commitment to fight racism is commendable, um, but the liberal tolerance of abortion, adultery, pornography, all under the guise of freedom of speech uh, from the pornography realm is wrong. 
uh, tolerance, I feel like, has become a substitute for grace. Conservatives want to restore lost values. They want to restore prayers and prayer in schools, and this also is commendable. But I want us to remember that the same schools that allowed prayer did not allow black kids to attend. Um, conserving things that are clearly wrong, like xenophobia, racism, or the celebration of the Confederate flag in the Old South, that reeks of hypocrisy. My question to us this morning is that why do we live in a country where we have to choose between two viewpoints that are both at their core fundamentally wrong and both seem to stand in stark opposition to the teachings of Jesus? Choosing the lesser of two wrongs doesn't make my choice right. If I allow my kids to make a D in school because at the end of the day, you know what, a D is better than an F, I'm never going to get A's out of those kids. But if I challenge them to the standard of the A, then I think we're probably maybe going to get some B's and C's somewhere along the line, right, kids? <laughs> but we're much more likely to get A's than if the standard is set as, well, a D's better than an F. I want A leadership in this country. I want A leadership. I don't want D or F leadership. I think as a people, we need to demand A leadership. Um, why do we allow, why do we support, why do we vote for anything less? Why can't there be a system that is established that protects black lives, Muslim lives, Syrian lives, Hispanics, immigrants' lives, and the lives of the unborn? Why does it have to be either or? Why can't we have both? Speaking to the lives of refugees, let's remember that Jesus was a refugee in Egypt. Okay, so let's... Let's keep that in context when we're deciding, you know, where we sit on the matter. Speaking to the lives of the unborn, remember that David said in Psalms that God knitted him in his mother's womb. Why can't, establish, uh, why can't a system be established that reaches out in love and compassion to those trapped in destructive lifestyles, sexual promiscuity, or dying from AIDS while upholding God's stance against sexual immorality? And when I say sexual immorality, I mean all sexual immorality, including premarital sex and extramarital affairs that often we don't want to talk about. Why has freedom of speech become a license for degrading children, degrading women, devaluing intimacy between a husband and wife, and emasculating men as the Internet has done? Why can't we support the downtrodden and financially unstable in our communities while challenging them to do all they can for themselves and their families? Again, when I say this, I'm middle-class white guy, and I'm looking to Scripture to try to, to lead me on what my stance needs to be. But welfare doesn't have to mean enabling laziness, does it? In 2 Thessalonians 3.10, it says, If anyone would not work, neither should he eat. Um, and again, it's with a deep sense of humility that I approach that because I don't know what it's like to be below the poverty line in Athens, Georgia. If you have the ability to work and you choose not to, I don't know where our society should sit on supporting you. You can't help someone who's not willing to do all they can to help themselves. As a physical therapist, we see a lot of people who come in and they have disabilities that does not allow them to work. My question is, is that if we took all of the people who could work and chose not to off the welfare system, how much more could we help those people that actually can't provide for themselves? I want to emphasize this. This is not a problem that will be eliminated by eradicating Islam. It won't be, okay? And to think so is very narrow-minded of us. And I'm not promoting that in any way, shape, or form. This is not simply a racial issue. Are there racial issues in this country? Absolutely. But I think if we just call this a racial issue, we're missing the boat. This is not a problem that will be eliminated by increasing gun legislation or by welfare reform. It just won't. With all of its technology, a drone doesn't have the ability to come in and just eradicate the problem. You can't legislate love. You can't legislate morality. You can't legislate the acceptance exhibited in God's grace at the cross and the truth exhibited in God's law. 
that can't be legislated. You cannot legislate grace and truth. It's written on our hearts. It's not written in the passages of the Constitution. Hebrews 10, 16 says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. You cannot legislate the value of human life. All human life. Black, white, Muslim, Jew, Christian, atheist, rich, poor, young, old, able-bodied, disabled-bodied, gay, straight, transgendered, born, unborn, pro-life, pro-choice. Every life matters. Every life matters. They were all created by God in God's image, and that alone makes all life inherently and equally valuable. No matter what the law says or how it's written, all life matters. So, wow. Thanks, Jimbo. (laughs) Thanks a lot. So, my question is, what's next? Like, what do we do? It's, It's very easy to look around and see that. I think we're in a very similar position to the Jews um, in Judges 21-25. Uh, 21-25 is the last verse in Judges, and it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And I think that unless we have one standard, we're going to continue to do what's right in our own eyes. And we're going to get further and further away from the truth. I believe we live in a fallen world where there are no moral absolutes and we're trying to eradicate the idea of a moral lawgiver. Uh, We're fallen and Adam's seed has successfully infiltrated the world. So I want to start off today by looking at the bookends of the passages that I've been charged with covering over the next two weeks. Um, James 4.11 says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping with it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and one judge, one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So what's our take home from that verse or those verses there? The overarching theme that I want to use to kind of encapsulate James 4, 11 through 12 is James is basically imploring the early church to be gracious to one another to avoid the legalism that Jesus so often spoke out against during his public ministry, uh, especially in regards to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, In his book, The Quotable Matthew Henry, Matthew Henry responds to these verses by stating, the Christians to whom James wrote were apt to speak very hard things to one another because of their difference about indifferent things. He goes on to note that when we condemn a brother for not agreeing with him in those things that the law of God is left indifferent, We are thereby censoring and condemning the law. In these verses, we see James imploring the early church to be gracious to one another. So James is imploring us to not add extra biblical stuff onto what we need to do on a daily basis. And I'm sure that in those days it was very similar to in our time where it's about, you know, type of clothing we might choose to wear to church or the things that we might choose to eat and those kind of things. But anyway... James is imploring the early Christians to grace and kindness without straying from the truth. I want to reinforce that I don't believe that grace means license. But I do believe that in this early passage, James is imploring the early Christians to be gracious to one another. It's not about calling, uh, not calling sin out for what it is, but rather about adding rules to the law which God never intended. Um, let's move on and let's look at the last passage in the section that I'll be covering over the next two weeks, and that's James five nineteen through 20. In James five nineteen through 20, we see, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. So in the first First verses that we just looked at, grace is the overarching theme there. In the last verses, in, in five nineteen through 20, the overarching theme is truth. 
Again, looking at Matthew Henry's commentary on these verses, Henry reports that we cannot be said to convert any by merely altering their opinions unless we can bring them to correct and amend their ways. We are not looking to change an opinion. We are looking to change ways, habits, and behaviors. But when I say we, I mean the power of the Holy Spirit working within us, not based on our own merit. These changes come with a heart conversion, not with a mind conversion. Religion cannot change your heart, but Jesus can. Religion cannot change your heart, but Jesus can. So I wanted to look at the, the first portion of the, my James section and then the last portion of my James section uh, so that hopefully we can use this for a springboard about a deeper discussion on grace and truth. Uh, Renato, who's not here this morning, he texted me and uh, he wanted to be here but couldn't be here. Renato is uh, uh, just an awesome friend and brother. He shared with me a book uh, written by Randy Alcorn and it's called The Grace and Truth Paradox. And in that book, Randy Alcorn says, Truth without grace breeds self-righteous and crushing legalism. Grace without truth breeds deception and moral compromise. So on one hand, we've got an overabundance of truth not matched with grace, and what we have there is we've got this self-righteous, crushing legalism. We've all been around the religious people, you know, who it's like, man, can you cut us some slack? On the opposite end, Alcorn says, grace without truth breeds deception and moral compromise. Grace is the reason that so many hospitals worldwide were either founded or funded by followers of Jesus. Truth is the reason so many colleges and universities were established by followers of Jesus. If we're to faithfully serve Jesus, we must do so with a healthy balance of grace and truth. I'm here this morning to say that Jesus is the only person, the only the only being to ever inhabit this earth that held grace and truth in equal balance. The only one ever to hold grace and truth in equal balance. And if we are to be followers of Jesus and we are to adequately serve Jesus, we have to challenge ourselves and one another to hold grace and truth in equal balance. Recently, as I said earlier, our family took a a trip to the West Coast And we were in this uh, little winery in Sonoma County, California. And we went into, I went into the bathroom. uh, And there was a poster up over the toilet in the bathroom. And written on the poster it said, Be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. Be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. And that was a quote uh, by Horace Mann. I Wikipedia'd Horace Mann a little bit and wasn't able to find out a lot of information on him, but I still like the quote. But the question that I have for us this morning is that what greater victory for humanity is there than the sacrifice of the cross? What greater service to humanity than to spread the love of Jesus by sharing his grace and his truth? Out of all the negative stuff that we started out talking about this morning, we come as followers of Jesus bringing good news into a world in which it often appears that there is none. Uh, We come this morning to tell the world that there is one answer that will absolutely solve all of its problems. Only one answer that will absolutely solve all of its problems. The answer holds both grace and truth in perfect balance, and the answer is Jesus. It's only Jesus No more and no less. It's not plus one. It's not minus one. It's one. It's one. Of all of the problems that were highlighted minutes ago, any possible answer that does not point to Jesus will always be the wrong answer. Throughout Scripture, Jesus was the only one who was able to hold both grace and truth in perfect balance. Throughout history, we are all drawn to the grace and truth displayed by Christ to the woman at the well, the woman being stoned for adultery, 
Mary and the Pine of Nard, the two thieves at the cross. All of these stories, what we see is we see the perfect balance of grace and truth that is so hard to come by in our world today. He lived a life completely filled with grace without compromise and truth without legalism. And that's the one thing that I want to reinforce is grace, he never compromised. He never compromised. But his truth wasn't matched with this hardcore legalism, analyze everything to the nth degree and add stuff to scripture that was never meant, that was never meant to be part of God's law. I'm not promoting the prospering of a religion. This is not about my worldview versus somebody else's. This is not about like taking our point of view and shoving it down the throat of somebody who believes opposite than us. This is not about a political party. This is not about race or gender or country of origin or any man-made construct that a lot of us either consciously or subconsciously adhere to. This is about Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. I challenge you this morning that the greatest victory that we could win for humanity is to spread the grace and truth of Jesus. This is the only answer that will solve the world's problems. That's it. And if I make it about Jesus plus a political candidate, I'm missing the boat. Unless I'm assured that that political candidate is an absolute follower of Jesus. So my next question is, who will we or who do we allow Jesus to be in our world? What do we do with Jesus? I think that that's the question. The answer to that question, everything else hinges on the answer to that question. I believe that my success as a man, my success as a father, my success as a husband, my success as a business owner, my success as a boss, my success as a physical therapist, it's not based on me. It's based on what I decide to do with Jesus. Who do I allow him to be in all of those areas? Our success as a church, our success as a community, our success as a state, as a country, our success as the human civilization depends on what do we decide to do with Jesus. There is so much freedom in submission to Jesus. There's so much clarity that's gained by submitting to Jesus. There's so much strength that is gained by submission to Jesus. We all submit to something. Cars, money, job, religion, political party, a country club, the list goes on and on. I just challenge us this morning to choose to submit to the one that rights all the wrongs, that dries all the tears, and that heals all the wounds, and in whom we are promised that everything will be made new again. No one in the history of mankind has made that promise except for one. No one in the history of mankind has delivered on that promise except for one. Jesus promised during his public ministry to right all the world's wrongs. He did so at the cross and he continues to do so today, uh, to do so to this day for those that fall at his feet and call him their one Lord and one Savior. I also want to challenge us that this movement, this one thing, it's fluid and it's moving and it didn't stop at the cross. It continues to change lives to this day. It was and is and always will be the pivotal moment in all of history. And I believe that our future success as a people is based upon our actions in response to the cross and nothing else. Eradicating gun violence would be awesome. Eradicating racism would be awesome. But if we make it about that, if we make the main point about anything other than Jesus, I think we're missing the mark. For this movement to continue, it requires workers. I think it's time for us, and when I say us, this is me talking to me. So I think it's time for Jimbo to to get on board. I think it's time for me to begin the hard work of living and loving for Jesus. Nothing else. I think that when we look at our world today, 
It's in desperate need of that grace and that truth. We're in desperate need of the grace and truth of Jesus. So, we ask the question, who will we allow Jesus to be in our world? My next question is, who am I? Who is Jimbo Wood? Am I who Jesus needs me to be? We see in John 3.16 that Jesus came to show the world who God is. Jesus came to show us a reflection of God's love. Jesus sent the disciples out and continues to send us out today so that we, as followers of Jesus, are going to show the world what Jesus looks like. So Jesus came to show us what God looks like, and Jesus sends his followers out to show the world what he looks like. As a follower of Jesus, do I strike a perfect balance between grace and truth as my Lord and Savior did and continues to do? I don't know about you guys, but I feel like kind of like Hillary and Donald not to judge anybody. I'm not judge, jury, and executioner for anybody. I've got enough issues on my own, but I've missed the mark a lot. I'm off base. Uh, often with those in my inner circle, I go overboard with truth and super light on grace. I can tell you what I think about something real quick in a heartbeat. There's not a lot of grace in there, though, and I'm sorry. It's frustrating because God's shown so much grace and forgiveness to me. We also see within our world some Christian churches who go overboard with grace, never mentioning the word sin or hell. And when I put quotations around Christian churches, just because you call something, you know, just because I call myself a leprechaun doesn't mean I am. Okay? So, there are some who believe that being good is good enough. Jesus isn't required if we live a virtuous life. Like, hey, I'm good. You know, I don't lie, I don't cheat, I don't steal, I'm good. We see a rebuff to this misconception in Mark 10, 18. Uh, this is in Mark where Jesus is have, having a conversation with the rich man. Uh, and the rich man basically comes and says, good teacher, uh, what do I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus' response is, he said, why do you call me good? If anybody is worthy of accepting the moniker or the, you know, being called good, I would think, you know, it would be Jesus. Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. So, will a good person go to heaven? Absolutely. A good person will go to heaven. Here's the problem. Jesus says there's only one that is good, and that's God himself. Is there any such thing as a good person? No. We see in Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Again, in Romans 3.23, we see all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. Every one of us. Me, primarily. I'm leading the charge, guys. The word sin and hell makes us uncomfortable sometimes. Do you know that the word hell is mentioned 14 times in the New Testament? Of those 14 times, 12 out of the 14, it is mentioned by Jesus. So, our grace and our truth standard talked about hell a lot and he talked about sin a lot. And I think even though it makes us uncomfortable, it has to be something that we're, that we're aware of and that we realize that we acknowledge. In Matthew 5.19, we see Jesus saying, so if you no ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God law, God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Without the truth of God's holiness and the stark reality of our sin, Christ, Christ and the cross is meaningless. Without the stark truth of God's holiness and the stark reality of our sin, Christ and the cross is meaningless. 
without a full understanding of what we truly deserve because of our sinful ways, the cross becomes meaningless. In Luke 12, 5, Jesus says, But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you in the hell, into hell. Jude 1, 4 says, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. And I believe that when he says slipped in among you, he means infiltrated the church. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. That, I think that that is so applicable today. Isn't it amazing how you read in Scripture something that was written thousands of years ago and we're like, man, this is timeless. Let's go back and let's read that again. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. We're never thankful for what we deserve. Okay? If I feel like I deserve a Lamborghini, I'm not thankful when my parents give me that Camaro. Because I deserve the Lamborghini. We're deeply thankful for what we know we don't deserve. I don't deserve Jesus' grace and Jesus' truth. I don't deserve the cross, but He gave it to me anyway, and He gives it to all of us. And so I'm so thankful this morning that I serve a Savior who has washed me clean. Not because of anything that I've done for Him, but because of what He did for me, because He is grace and He is truth. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of our sin, our debt to God is far greater than any person's debt to us. And this, I've, I read this recently, and this just kind of overwhelm me the idea that you know a lot of times I hold on to anger in my heart and I hold on to bitterness in my heart and it's hard for me to forgive people who have wronged me but when you come to the realization of there's no person on the face of the earth that will ever do to me that will ever treat me the way that I've treated God that makes forgiveness a lot easier there's nobody that's going to do to me what I've done to Jesus. Nobody. When we experience God's forgiveness at the cross, we are able to forgive others. We are able to be gracious to others who have wronged us because of Christ's graciousness and love towards us. This is when our world, both individually and collectively, begins to turn away from sin and turn towards the grace and truth of Jesus. When we look at the story of the prodigal son in Luke, uh, in Luke 15, we see in Luke 15, 20 through 21, that while his son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against you, and I have sinned against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The wonderful thing about this story is that, you know, if I would have been the father in this, in this little story here, I'd have been standing there with my arms crossed, watching him run to me, and then when he got there, I would have said, I told you so. Told you you'd come back. But that's not God's response. God's response is, while his son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The father's response after this, after the son responds that I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, remember that he lavished his son with garments and rings and they had a celebratory feast. And here we see this awesome compassion, the pursuit that the father has for the son, and then the grace that the father shows the son when the son just says, like, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And... 
I feel like also in the story, I'm the, I'm the older, was it the older brother? I'm the older brother who's like, come on, man, really? You know? Um, my answer to the question, am I who Jesus needs me to be? Am I a biblical representation of what a true follower of Jesus should look like today? No. The problem with our church today is me. I'm the problem, and Jesus is the one answer. In sharing Jesus, we must realize the grace and truth of Christ and present the world with His grace and His truth. We must also be willing to lay down our sin at the foot of the cross through His grace and truth working within us. In making decisions on politics, racism, gun control, radical Islam, etc., 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 I must make decisions knowing that above all else, I'm a follower of Jesus. First. Every decision I make must be made with the understanding that my primary goal in life is to take up my cross daily and follow Christ. That is not my primary goal. That's my only goal. Often, I think we become a conservative who just happens to be a Christian. Like, man, I love the Republican Party and yeah, I go to church every Sunday. Um... Am I an American who's heavily involved in the political process and often, often just, and also just happens to believe in Jesus? Or am I a follower of Jesus? Like, which comes first? My devotion to Jesus should be my first priority above my devotion to my family, to my job, to my country, to my race, to my political party. All of that stuff is secondary. And I'm not trying to demean my role and my family's role in my life, and vice versa. Uh, I'm not trying to demean the importance that, that our heritage and our race has. But when we follow Jesus, we choose to follow Jesus and Jesus alone. Because it's one, it's not a plus minus. Too often I confess that my role as a follower of Jesus becomes secondary to other things in life. Jesus calls me to be His and nothing else. We are called to be true followers of Jesus, nothing more and nothing less, and that's all we need. That's all our families need. That's all our friends need. That's all our church needs. That's all the world needs. When I make the answer to our problems about something more than Jesus, I feel like I've missed the boat. When I make my life, my choices, my hobbies about something that stands in conflict with me being first and foremost a follower of Jesus, I'm on the wrong track. And this is Jimbo, this is the Jimbo talking to Jimbo here. When I make my life, my choices, my hobbies about something that stands in conflict with me being first and foremost a follower of Jesus, I'm on the wrong track. So we've referred to Jesus this morning as our standard. And I challenge us that grace means never lowering the standard. Grace doesn't mean that we lower the standard. I challenge us this morning that sometimes in love, truth means making folks uncomfortable. Some of the stuff that we've discussed today, you know, when I'm going through this stuff, there's this huge spiritual battle going on. Like, Jimbo, don't say that. You're going to make some people upset, you know? Um, That's okay. Discomfort is often a conduit for change, at least it is in my life. Comfort normally doesn't spur somebody on to change, but discomfort does. And so it's okay if I'm uncomfortable. As a family of believers, we must worry if everyone is attracted to our ways. If everybody comes in here and says, that was the best thing I've ever seen, and wow, that's what we want. But the truth of the matter is is that sometimes truth makes people uncomfortable. So the flip side of that is that everybody, if everybody's attracted to us, we're on the wrong track because I don't think we're sharing truth. If nobody's attracted to us, we're also on the wrong track 
because we're not sharing grace. Grace without truth makes everyone happy. When we see uh, John 6, 41 through 42, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, the, the following day, a lot of the people who were there to see the miracle of him um, feeding the 5,000, they come back the next day and they're looking for a miracle. They want Jesus to do something cool. Like, show me something cool, man. I'm here for the show. Jesus makes a claim of deity at that point in time. And we see in Scripture that this caused some of the people in the crowd to murmur under their breath. They didn't like it. They love the grace of the miracle. They love sitting there and being fed, being a consumer. But when he challenged them to something other than being a consumer, they mumbled and most of them walked away. They loved the grace of the miracle, but they hated the truth of Jesus' claims of being the bread of life. Also, look at Jesus' response to the rich man again in Mark 10, 21 through 22. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And I bring this up because I think sometimes that in my life what I experience is trying to circumvent the power of the Holy Spirit and trying to circumvent Jesus' grace and Jesus' truth as being, you know, I'm going to be the one who stands in the middle and I'm going to be the one, I'm, I'm almost like the interpreter and so I'm going I'm to walk you through every step of the way. The neat thing about, you know, Jesus' response to the rich man in Mark 10, 21 through 22 was that Jesus looked at him, he loved him, he shared the truth with him, and he allowed the rich man to make his decision. Jesus didn't continue to run after him and say, hold on now, let me tell you something else. Let me, you know, let me give you another version of the story. And so in Jesus sharing his truth with the rich man, sometimes that makes people uncomfortable. But again, our goal is not to make people uncomfortable. Our goal is to be truthful in love. Um, In closing, I want to say that we don't need to look very hard at our world today to realize that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world full of problems. Everyone seems to have their own opinions on what the solution is. Gun control, a certain political candidate, eradication, or propagation of certain religions. Some people say eradication of all religions. Welfare reform, disallowing immigration, securing the border, like, we've got thousands of options on what the answer is. I contend that we need to test each of these possible solutions against the teachings of Jesus. I contend that Jesus is the only answer. I contend that if we support anything whose actions, party platform, policies, or way of life stand in contrast to the teachings of Jesus, this undermines my ability to effectively witness to those to non-believers and basically makes me a hypocrite. People are constantly looking at me to be their reflection of what Jesus is supposed to look like. I contend that if I'm a faithful follower of Jesus, all of my choices should be reflect, a reflection of that. I don't contend that I'm successful here, but I'm saying that if I'm going to be a faithful follower of Jesus, all my choices should be a reflection of that. And to Jesus, I say this morning, I'm sorry, because they're not. I believe that if I'm a follower of Jesus, my identity, my identity is radically changed. I contend that if I'm a follower of Jesus, everything else falls under my submission to Him. This includes my civic responsibilities. This includes my social responsibilities. This includes my lifestyle choices. If my relationship and commitment to Beth was in, intended the day that we said those vows in front of everybody, if that relationship and that commitment was intended to impact my thoughts, my words, my deeds in all areas, how much more should my relationship with Jesus impact every part of my life? If any of my actions diminish my ability to witness for Jesus, this is hypocrisy inside me, inside my heart. I believe that the world needs Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less will make the solution to the problem. Nothing more and nothing less. Sorry. 
And to make the solution to the problem about anything that does not point to Jesus only makes the problem worse. I challenge us as a church family to pursue Jesus no matter what the cost. Nothing more and nothing less. In Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail in 1963, and I've left copies back on the dehumidifier back in the right-hand corner if any of you guys are interested. There's a, it's um, some excerpts from the, from the letter. Um, anyway, but in his letter from a Birmingham jail in 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, So the question is not whether we will be extremist, But what kind of extremist will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinions. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. But the judgment of God is upon the church today as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. And those were Martin Luther King Jr.'s words in 1963, and I think that they still still ring true today. Um... Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this awesome opportunity this morning um, to speak to this wonderful, loving uh, community of believers. Father, I just ask that you seek our, uh, search our hearts this morning. And just search every nook and cranny of our hearts, Father. And that um, in your gracious and truthful way that you expose the hypocrisy that, that lies inside there, Father. And that you, and that you challenge us um, through your grace and through your love to be the people, both individually and collectively, that you're calling us to be, Father. Father, when we look on this world today, we, we see that we need the one standard that is Jesus Christ. And Father, we just ask that you give us opportunities to spread the love of Jesus uh, to those who may not know love. Father, I just ask that you uh, help us to lead authentic lives uh, that paint the picture of a true follower of Jesus as you intended it. And Father, that you just give us awesome loving relationships that point us back to the way of truth when we get off track track as we so often do, Father. Thank you so much for this day and just uh, please allow us to use this day to draw closer to you and closer to one another, Father, and to serve you better. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.